back to Vandenberg Flash Focus, your source for fast and focused foreign policy analysis on breaking news from around the world. This week, we are talking about the war in Ukraine once again. The timing is fitting. We are recording this episode on Friday, February 23rd, the eve of the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. I'm glad to be joined today by Richard Fontaine, the Chief Executive Officer of the Center for a New American Security. Richard has previously served in government at the U.S. Department of State, the National Security Council, and on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Like our guest last week, Richard has recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, where he traveled over 1,300 miles across the country, including to several towns close to the front line. I am glad to have him here to talk about his visit, the war, and the policy debate here in Washington. Richard, welcome to Flash Focus. Hi, thanks for having me. So, like I mentioned, this episode is coming out on the anniversary of Russia's invasion uh, two years ago this weekend. Uh, Can you refresh our listeners as to the military and political situation in Ukraine right now? The military situation, if you look very big picture, is certainly different than uh, many people had expected at the beginning of this war when it was seen as very likely that Ukraine would collapse in the face of the Russian offensive. The Ukrainians have held out and the Russians now possess uh, more territory certainly than they did at the beginning of the war, um, but not uh, by any degree the amount that they sought to possess uh, in their original offensive. The lines, there's about a 700 mile line um, north runs north to south and the east. Uh, The Russians are entrenched uh, on that side of the line, the Ukrainians are increasingly entrenched on their side of the line, but the fighting there is very fierce. Russia is also continuing to launch uh, significant bombardments of Ukrainian cities and attacks on infrastructure and military infrastructure as well. Um, Over this past weekend, uh, the town of Adipka uh, fell to the Russians. That was the first territorial gain by the Russians since May of 2023. So that was significant. Uh, in terms of momentum, although not all that consequential in terms of the actual location. Um, and the Russians are shooting uh, mortars and and um, artillery at, at probably about a five or a six to one exchange rate uh, compared to what the Ukrainians uh, can shoot back. There's, um, I think, a sense in Ukraine that the situation is as tenuous as it has been since the early days of the war. Um, the Russians have been uh, on a bit of the move. Um, they've got a lot of firepower behind them and uh, a sense of momentum. And of course, all eyes in Ukraine are focused on Washington, not just Moscow, to see whether the United States will come through with a new package of military, humanitarian and budget aid. So I, I've seen a lot of articles, you know, especially leading up to the anniversary and, and certainly uh, in light of you know, the lackluster uh, results from Ukraine's counteroffensive last summer. A lot of articles arguing that, you know, Ukraine is losing the war. And, and this is it puts a very pessimistic gloss on this. But, uh, you know, to flip this around, the Ukrainians have been up against long odds from the very beginning, like you said. Um, can you tell us more about, you know, exactly what have they accomplished, you know, and, um, you know, against these long odds and what um, what's the morale like? What's the resolve like among the people you talk to when you are in Ukraine? 
what they've accomplished is survival. They've maintained their independence, their sovereignty. The country of Ukraine still exists, and that is something that was by no means clear would be the case uh, early in this war. In the Russians tried to go to Kiev. They tried to take cities, including places like Odessa in the West. Uh, assumption was that they would quickly topple the government in Kiev, replace it uh, with some sort of puppet government that would have, uh, you know, some degree of alignment or more with Russia. And those things didn't happen. Uh, Ukraine has lost more territory, and, but there is a Ukrainian state that continues to fight for its survival and its independence. And that's no small thing, particularly if you think about the fact that Ukraine was the largest state in geographically in Europe before all of this began and still a, still a big place. So they have accomplished a lot. Um, the question right now is where do things go from here? What's the momentum like and so forth? And uh, a lot of that depends on Russia and Ukraine, but some of that depends on us. Um, actually quite a bit depends on us. I would say that the the mood in Ukraine is one in which people still want to stay in the fight. Um, if you look at the polls, there's a the percentage that would be prepared to trade land for peace if peace could be had with the Russians has risen, but it's still quite small, you know, in the sort of 15 to 20 percent range. Um, the fear of what Russian occupation of their country or parts, more parts of their country would look like uh, is a strong motivator, given the stories that have emerged from places that were under Russian occupation. And as one local official uh, said, Ukrainians are tired, but not exhausted. They definitely are tired, but they're not so exhausted that they don't want to continue the fight. But their ability to do so and their, uh, to a large degree, their ability to, to survive uh, depends on uh, the solidarity of the world and, and the U.S. more than anybody else. Yeah, and you you mentioned that, you know, even kind of average Ukrainians are paying very close attention to what's happening um, on on Capitol Hill, you know, perhaps even more than a lot of people uh, here in D.C. are paying attention to the debate over, um, you know, the the military aid and the humanitarian aid supplemental uh, going through Congress. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. That's that's something that we don't necessarily think of as kind of Americans is. Um, you know, other countries paying close attention like that. But it's certainly, as soon as you think of it, it's it's completely obvious. Yeah, I never thought I would hear the term discharge petition in. <laughs> but if you live long enough, anything is possible. And in fact, I did. And yes, I mean, not only in Kiev, but also out in many other places, uh, all eyes are turned to Washington and to the House of Representatives and to the debate over the supplemental aid package. And you can understand why very, you know, easily. Uh, I mean, if the, the cities, and Kiev's a great example of this, are protected by missile defense interceptors provided by the United States or Patriot batteries protecting uh, Kiev, for example. If those interceptors start stop showing up, then it could become something more akin to a free fire zone for the Russians. When we were in Dnipro, we spent a couple hours in a uh, air raid shelter below the hotel where we were staying. 46 missiles and drones were shot at Ukraine. I believe something on the order of 36 or so were shot down. 
well, what shot those things down? Part of the what shoots those things down is US military assistance. If it doesn't arrive, those things get through. Um, if you look at the front on the eastern front, um, you know, the, the Russians have not been able to fly warplanes over Ukrainian territory since the early days of the war because they're held at risk by Ukrainian air defenses. Um, that means no close air support for Russian troops. That means that uh, they can launch cruise missiles at cities, but they can't bomb them sort of directly. Well, if the air defenses go away, then it's possible that Russian warplanes can overfly the country. On the budget side, uh, the government's coffers are going to be empty here in a couple of months. Um, and, you know, unlike the EU aid, the US aid would be an immediate infusion through the World Bank of, of, of money. On the humanitarian side, you can tell a similar story. So this is very real. And this is not an abstract, you know, debate over whether the rules-based international order and whether it's a good idea to set a precedent for conquest or, you know, all this other kind of stuff. I mean, this is this is real kind of survival, real kind of life and death situation uh, in Ukraine right now. And so, uh, you know, they they ascribe a lot of the future trajectory of what they can or couldn't do to decisions being made in Washington. Uh, and yeah, here in Washington, I mean, we have. Uh, if memory serves, the Senate has passed a, a version of a, a supplemental uh, bill that would provide funding for Ukraine. There's a, a new proposal, a different proposal in the House, um, you know, but it seems like it's it's deadlocked. Are you are you optimistic that this is is going to pass? Do you think that it's going to get uh, get killed uh, at some point or, or ground down in um uh, procedure and and some kind of deadlock. Uh, do you have thoughts on on what the likely trajectory is? Yeah, I'm overall optimistic. Um, I will admit that part of this is a faith based exercise because trying to handicap um, decisions being made in the House of Representatives these days is not for any betting man or woman. Um, but I mean, I just described a couple of the consequences if the aid stops. And I could spend another 20 minutes talking about other consequences still. And I think when the gravity of that becomes uh, ever clearer to those in the House and the gravity of just what a tremendous setback this would be to U.S. foreign policy, um, I, I think that the House uh, ultimately will will do the right thing, at least what in, in my mind, the right thing and and pass this legislation to provide the assistance to Ukraine. Um, and I mean, if you think about it, had we done nothing at the beginning of this war, it would have been bad. But what we did say is this shall not stand. We will help the will help Ukraine for quote as long as it takes. Um, this this is a hugely consequential transgression against the world that we want to see forcible conquest of another country in Europe that this would set a precedent for how Xi Jinping and the Chinese potentially think about Taiwan and other places. Um, you know, if we mean half of what we said about the stakes here, and by the way, we did say all those things and continue to stop now would be catastrophic for our own credibility and our own uh, way of sort of establishing the way uh, the rules unfold for the world ahead. And so, um, again, a bit of a faith basic uh, uh, thing, but, you know, I, I suspect that the House will try everything else and then in the end do the right thing. I think that's the uh, uh, the Churchill quote about us Americans, right? We we always do the right thing after we've exhausted every every other option. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, I understand you were also, you know, while you were in Europe, you you uh, were at the Munich Security Conference, talked to a lot of our, our European allies and, and partners over there. Um, and you you mentioned you mentioned some of the strategic consequences of of you know the House failing to pass uh, an aid bill or us deciding to pull back. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about um, you know what are the strategic ramifications uh, for NATO if we do that for our European allies, um, and just go a little bit more into detail about um, you know what this means not just for Ukraine but also for the the whole region. Yeah, I mean, before we went to Ukraine, we were in Moldova for a relatively brief time and met among other people with the president of Moldova. And there's a a fear there, I think, quite rightly, that if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, then they could be next. I mean, they have their own breakaway region of Transnistria with, you know, uh, a few hundred Russian, quote, peacekeepers there and uh, and and, you know, uh, it's not a NATO territory. They have a a small army that couldn't fend off the Russians, if, you know, and so forth. Um, and in Munich, for the first time, I saw Europeans, NATO leadership, describing the need to stop Russia in Ukraine, not just as the precedent that this would set for other aggression around the world, uh, or because this is a cardinal transgression of the rules-based international order, but essentially as what one might describe as containment uh, because if you uh, if they are able to you know, succeed in their conquest uh, they get closer to nato territory if you, you know putin from his language to his actions seems to want to revive uh, at least the republic the, the 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 russian empire i mean is his conversation with Tucker Carlson, that's sort of the way he talked about Poland and some of these other places, a little disquieting. And, uh, you know, if you coupled that at some point with an American president who said, well, I don't really want to defend NATO, then you've got yourself a real security threat. And so um, that has made, I think, the stakes for Europeans in Ukraine quite concrete. It's not sort of abstract international order, European security sort of stuff. It's you know, how close might hostile Russian forces be to our territory and uh, who's going to fend them off if they decide to make a move? Yeah, and I think it's important to note um, for our listeners uh, as well that um, the Europeans at this point are, are I believe, almost matching or, or exceeding uh, collectively the amount of, of humanitarian and military aid uh, that the EU countries are providing to uh, to Ukraine, matching America's um, uh, aid as well. Yeah, the Europeans for a while were behind the United States and now they're ahead. So if you add up total aid, they're actually at this point significantly ahead. Um, there are some differences in the aid. Um, the $50 billion package that the EU pledged is pledged over three years and it's individual countries making contributions, whereas if the US supplemental comes through, then it's the kind of budget support that could keep the Ukrainian government open and, and paying salaries uh, for a while. And then, of course, there's uh, forms of military assistance that the United States can provide. The Europeans just can't provide because they don't have the stuff or they don't have the industrial production. Um, so, you know, it's really got to be a, 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 you know, you've got salt and you've got pepper. You put them, you put them both together and, and, that, and that, that's what's going to 
keep the Ukrainians uh, in the fight and uh, as long as they uh, are willing to remain to. I mean, I think the other thing that was pretty clear on this trip to Ukraine is the material deprivation that I described is very real. If the military doesn't come through, then there's things the Russians can do and the Ukrainians can't. That's not the case today. On the humanitarian side, you've got people who are literally living um, you know, day to day on the back of humanitarian assistance that would go away or at least be diminished, you know, the budget support. But there's also a huge psychological component to this. I mean, the Ukrainians are are, you know, they they, they watch TV and read the news, too, and they see the sort of um, uh, optimism, if not bravado, that the Russians seem to exhibit these days. They see the debates about whether this is worth doing and supporting on on our side and things like that. They, you know, they see the changes on the ground and yet they're willing to stay in the fight and risk their lives to try to preserve the survival of their country. They are willing to do the fighting. Um, but what they say is we can't do it by ourselves. And I worry that if we abandon Ukraine and that's what failing to aid Ukraine would amount to, it would provoke a psychological blow, the likes of which Putin in two years has not been able to produce in Ukraine. I mean, war is a test of wills, and you could really um, you could really undermine uh, the Ukrainian will to keep going uh, if they feel abandoned. Psychological, but real. Yeah, similar, I think, in, in a lot of ways to um, uh, how we handled our, our pullout from Afghanistan um, and, and the psychological effect of that uh, leading to the, the Taliban being able to rapidly take over the country. Uh, one one last question on, um, you know, kind of on the topic of, of strategy and, and American goals. Um, you know, you've, you've mentioned the, the detractors from, you know, the people who are arguing against um, uh, providing more aid to Ukraine, you know, here in the United States. Um, and one of the big um, one of the big arguments against it is, you know, we've we've not articulated a clear goal. Uh, like you mentioned, the Biden administration's line has been support Ukraine for as long as it takes. And I hear that a lot, but I don't hear a lot of definition of what what exactly it is that we're we're trying to uh, achieve. So so my last question is, you know, what what do you think America's goals are or or should be? Um, with regard to this war and and how might they differ, if at all, from, you know, Ukraine's goals? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's also a difference between what people say publicly and what they're willing to acknowledge privately, both in Washington and in Kiev. I mean, the stated Ukrainian goal is to liberate every inch of Ukrainian territory currently held by the Russians, including Crimea. That is great. I would love to see that. I don't think that's a militarily achievable objective in the short to medium term. Maybe there's some counteroffensive in next year down the line or something that could make some inroads there. But, you know, I think this year is about survival. It's about not losing additional territory to uh, to to Russia. Uh, Russia is moving on places like Kharkiv, which is not in the areas it's annexed in the Donbass, but is the second biggest city and they'd love to have it. Um, and so I think the objective for 2024 is survival uh, for Ukraine, maximal survival of Ukrainian territory, sovereignty, independence. And, you know, ultimately, it's likely that there will be some sort of negotiation. I mean, the U.S. and Ukraine certainly will never accept the uh, Russian sovereignty or control over what is, in fact, Ukrainian territory. Um, but at some point, if there's some stop in the fighting uh, in which 
uh, Ukraine, you know, a lot, 80 plus percent of Ukraine uh, endures without fighting while you have a longer term approach of trying to get the rest of it back. I, I think that that's probably where we're headed for over time. But that requires Russia discerning that it's in its interest to have that kind of discussion. And it won't as if it thinks that it's going to continue to make gains. And so, again, this sort of gets back to, I think, the objective for 2024 is Ukraine, maximal Ukrainian survival. And at one level, that sort of feels underwhelming. I mean, shouldn't we aim for the total liberation of everything or, you know, why the hell would we, you know, expend so many resources and so much energy only to try to, you know, end the year more or less where we are? But it's like anything else in life. What is the available alternative? And the available alternative is significant Russian gains in Ukraine and potentially even even the overrunning of that country. And then having spent all we've spent, having said all we've said uh, to have Russia, you know, in, succeed in its conquest of Ukraine would put us as a foreign policy matter way behind where we started, even if that that point we had done nothing. So um, so I think that's the I think that's the goal. It's hard to. I think for anyone in the administration or in Ukraine, I mean, there are different opinions than the one I expressed, but even if they agree with that, it's hard to say, yeah, the strategy is survival instead of we're going to get everything back if we just try hard enough. Um, but I do think that that's essentially where we are. And then, of course, we've got, you may be dimly aware there's a presidential uh, election in in this country this year. And, you know, depending on how the vote goes and depending on what the two candidates would actually do if they were uh, elected, re-elected, I should say, um, <laughs> then, you know, you could have very different situation in January next year, which is only 11 months away, where, you know, who knows if Donald Trump really wants to cut off all the aid and try to settle this in 24 hours, as he said, or not. I remember he said that he had a plan to defeat, a secret plan to defeat ISIS too. Um, so, uh, so who knows? Uh, but we've got to get to January 2025 before we can start to answer those questions. Excellent. Well, you've given us lots to think about. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Flash Focus is a production of the Vandenberg Coalition. To connect and stay up to date on our work, follow our account on X at Vandenberg Co. Or visit www.vandenbergcoalition.org to learn more and subscribe to our weekly newsletter on foreign policy and national security, Beyond the Water's Edge. Until next time, I'm Samuel Byers, and this is Vandenberg Flash Focus.